Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. We hope you're all safe and well and hope today's discussion will be a slight distraction and you will get informed and inspired. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to Sarah Harper. Sarah is a professor of gerontology at the University of Oxford. She is the co-director of the Oxford Institute of Population Aging, which she founded in 1997 with funding from the National Institute of Aging. Sarah served on the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology, which advises the Prime Minister on the scientific evidence for strategic policies and frameworks. In 2017, she served as the director of the Royal Institution of Great Britain. Sarah is a director and trustee of the UK Research Integrity Office and a member of the Board of Health Data Research UK. Sarah was appointed a CBE in 2018 for services to demography. Her background in anthropology and population studies and her early research focused on migration and the social implications of demographic change. Her current research on demographic change addresses the impact of falling fertility and increasing life expectancy, with a particular interest in Asia and Africa. Recent research has focused on women's education and empowerment in sub-Saharan Africa and the impact of this on desired family size, older women's health in Africa, and European life course trajectories and late-life female health. She currently directs two research projects looking at the aging of farmers in Vietnam and Myanmar. She has completed a monograph, How Population Change Will Transform Our World, Oxford University Press. Sarah, welcome. Hello. Uh, well, we're very happy to have you here today. Um, can you please tell us about yourself? Okay, so I'm Sarah Harper and I'm the Professor of Gerontology at the University of Oxford. Uh, and uh, 20 years ago, I set up a research institute um, on aging. And that was because I'd actually been working in the States. I was working at the University of Chicago and I discovered a lot of really interesting things that were happening in America. And I did a lot of work with the National Institute on Aging. And what I was really interested in was this idea that aging wasn't just about older adults, it was about all of us. It was about this transition from younger to older populations. And so I decided that that's what I wanted to focus on. And, and that's what I work on. And that's what my colleagues at Oxford at the Institute of Population Aging work on. Amazing. So please enlighten us about the subject then. So let's think of future populations. What are some of the demographic trends that you're seeing that might cause challenges today or in the future? So I think the way to look at it is when we think of aging, we tend to think of older people and we tend to think of living longer. But okay. the real driver of population aging is actually falling fertility or falling childbearing. So what happens is that across the globe, women start having fewer children. And that means there are less younger people coming into your societies, less younger people coming into the workforces and economies. And because that also combines with us living longer, we push the average age of the age structure up. So in some countries like Italy, uh, for example, Italy is a very old population because it has a very uh, low childbearing rate. Um, people tend to live uh, long, reasonably healthy lives in Italy. Uh, within about 15 years, half of Italy will be aged over 50. Um, we've never had a country in the world where half its population is aged between 50 and 100. Um, we're used to that sort of pyramid where there's lots of young people at the bottom. Uh, but we're going to see that flowing across basically most of Europe. So by the middle of this century, 
uh, we will have the majority of countries will have over half their population roughly aged over 50. Uh, we're seeing it also in Asia, in Southeast Asia, Japan, Korea, they're also aging. And mm. so it's really saying, how do we adjust to that kind of a society, um, making sure we keep equality both within um, generations, so across the socioeconomic divide, but also between generations, so that younger generations don't lose out as you have more and more older people. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that that change sort of happened almost pretty quickly, right? Because I think you also talk about this often where like in 1960s, there was like other ideas of our future populations, right? Like we were actually scared that global population would be like maybe quadruple what it was then or like even more. Yeah, I mean, so so you're right because we're not just talking about an aging population, we're also talking about a declining population. Mm. So the interesting thing about aging populations is that we're not just talking about populations that are getting older, we're also talking about declining populations. Um, Now at the moment, maximum world population is still increasing, but in some parts of the world, uh, we have our populations actually potentially shrinking, and the only reason they're not shrinking is because of immigration. Mm. So we have to take the three drivers into account, and that's what is the childbearing rate, what is the death rate and how is that compensated for by the immigration or the out migration rate? So in the 1960s, we just thought that birth rates were out of control, that uh, particularly in um, Asian countries where they were having very, very high families and uh, large numbers of children still, that we were just going to have this massive population explosion. Hmm. And basically what happened is that what we had seen happen historically in Europe started to flood across the world. So in fact, now in two thirds of the world's countries, women are at near or below replacement level. So increasingly across the world, women, if you can empower them, if you ask how many children would you like, most women want two children. And that is more or less replacement. By replacement, you mean we're standing steady, like when nothing is moving. Yeah. So, so if you think about it, you know, that in order um, that, that most children, or all children have a mother and a father. And so that mother and father have two children, they replace themselves. And mm. that's really, really basically what a replacement rate is. Now, it's obviously much more complicated than that because some people do have more than two children and an increasing number of women don't have children. True. Uh, but it sort of balances out and it depends on the age structure of the population. But roughly you can say between 2.1 and 2.4 children per couple tend to be a replacement level. But of course, what is happening is that it's happening in different parts of the world at different times. So we have in Southern Europe and in Southeast Asia, we are having families where they're having uh, huge numbers of women who are childless or they're having one child. Um, And as a consequence, those countries are aging very, very rapidly. And the only reason they stay young is because they have immigrants coming into their population. Hmm. And if you look at the two Two very successful countries in terms of reducing aging are the UK and France. And we both have very, very high immigrant populations. And it is the immigrants both from Europe and from our former colonies or what is now our Commonwealth in the case of the UK that come into our society and invigorate it and keep it young because the UK has not replaced itself by birth since 1976. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's a while. Wow. <laughs> But then you look at um, many of the Southeast Asian countries, Japan, Korea, obviously China, 
And they also are aging very, very dramatically. And unless those countries compensate through immigration, then they will very dramatically age. But this is what's happening over the 21st century. And yeah. by the end of the 21st century, what we believe will happen is that most countries will be more or less at replacement. What are the challenges do you think that will come with that in the future? What are some of the things that are being discussed today that with a larger age, like a population that is over 50? I mean, it's also tricky because like now we're talking about a healthier population over 50, right? Like it's not necessarily the same implications maybe compared to several years ago. Um, yes. But also there's still like a lot of generational gap in between, which is, I think we read this for like United States in 2030, it is expected that for the first time ever, three generations will be over 50 at the same time. So like, it's really interesting to see like how these like different generations are gonna be considered the elderly population or like aging population. Um, and yet, like, do we have an understanding of what that might entail? Like, even though, like, because it's going it's to be a different time. And what aging means could be also really different 20, 30 years from now. And, I mean, I think you, you are exactly right to say that we don't know what aging will be. And the other really important point is around health. Mm. So at the moment, we're pushing back the onset of disability, particularly in the high income countries. Mm -hmm. And that means that not only are we living longer, but more and more of our population are living longer, healthier. And that's a, that's a really good thing. And so you could argue that if we increase healthy life expectancy at the same rate that we're increasing life expectancy, mm -hmm. then that doesn't matter. So we have 80-year-olds who are like today's 50-year-olds, maybe. And, and in which case, we live long lives and we continue being productive and active and contributory. And then the question is, how do we change our lifestyles? Because it's hmm. unthinkable that we will stop education in our 20s and retire in our 50s and live healthy lives to 100. So we have to change those life courses. And maybe we're talking about we mix education across the life course. We're in and out of periods of training. We mix economic employment. So maybe when we have children in our 30s and 40s, we step back and we give a lot of time being very positive parents. And then we come back into the workforce in our 40s, 50s, and then we can work till we're 70 because we've had 15 years off in the middle. There are all sorts of different models. So one way of looking at it is so long as we keep healthy, then population aging at some level doesn't matter, except for one thing, and that is the generational question. That if you still have people who are fit and active and um, running the government and running big corporations and in charge of our societies in their 70s and 80s. It means people in their 30s, 40s and 50s have got to wait longer and longer and longer. Um, and the, I mean, you in the, the States, when you look at, you know, if you look at Biden, Trump and um, Bernie Sanders, they're all old men. And yet they're very <laughs> they are accepted as potential or actual political leaders. So in a way, that's what's happened. And we sit in many parts of the world. Um, here in the UK, we have the classic Prince Charles, yeah. who is now in his early 70s, and the Queen at 94 <laughs> is fabulous and is really active. And, you know, I don't think anyone is thinking that the Queen is going to step down, and yet she's 94. So that is a classic generational problem. Um, so yeah. it really means that we've got to stop focusing on old people as if they are the issue. It isn't. It's the whole way in which our population structure is changing. And that is a really, really good thing. 
Because actually what we're saying is that everyone who is born has the chance to live 100 years. Yeah. And, and I think the other, way, the other way to look at it is if, if we look, when was the world's first supercentenarian? He was born in 1789. And he died at 110 in 1899. He nearly lived in wow. two centuries. So we've all long-lived people. But at that time, there were probably 10 people who lived hundred in the whole of Europe. You know, so living longer, of course, it's always happened, but very, very few people. Now we have mass aging. That's the thing. We have the wonderful opportunity of us all eventually being able to live these long lives. But as that happens, and it will happen across this century, I think, um, we're talking at the moment of half the baby girls in high income countries making it to a century. Wow. So, you know, half, half our population, particularly the girls, because women tend to live longer than men in high-income countries that are being born at the moment, born at the moment, will probably make it to a sense. That is great news. And like, I guess, get great news for our like children and grandchildren too. Because I, we we uh, attended a conference by AARP in, um, in DC, I think several years ago. And what they were talking about, maybe if it was 2018, I think the data that they were presenting is like today's 10-year-old is expected to live until 104 like I think based on their like studies so that is like very like happy news for everyone's like children when you think about it um but it raises these like crazy interesting questions that you just like talked about like it's like unconceivable to think like you graduate at 21 and if you don't have a like yeah. you know um after undergraduate if you if you're not doing any like higher education or like you know um masters or you know phds like it stops and so like how does that make sense to life expectancy and even more questions around the healthcare system like i mean do we have do we only rely on hospitals and people going to hospitals or should it be a much more adaptive model if the population is completely shifting and even though the uh, the like statistics around disability may drop we might still need more doctor visits no so so i think i mean so interesting so the aarp study you're referring to was a 2009 study using uh, data from the human mortality mm -hmm. database and they predicted that babies born in 2007 in the states would make it ah, okay yes yeah. so today's 10 year old and but it's not the only one i mean there have been lots and lots of other studies so, so from a healthcare point of view, I suppose one of the big things, and remember, it isn't just high-income countries, we're also seeing it in the lower and middle-income mm. countries, so in Asia and Africa. It's slow, but um, we are seeing life expectancies increase, and we're slowly seeing, particularly in Africa, fertility coming down. Asian fertility is very low, Latin American fertility is low. So we, apart from the coronavirus at the moment, which is obviously very strange, we, for half a century have not had to worry in high-income countries about infectious diseases really very few people have died of infectious diseases the kind of people dying from the coronavirus which is a viral pneumonia typically is what we saw until we had antibiotics in the 20th century many 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 particularly older men died yeah. of pneumonia and so to a certain extent that's what we've gone back to we've gone back to what our grandparents and great-grandparents yeah. experienced but that's very unusual and the idea of us needing huge numbers of acute medical beds in hospitals in high-income countries really was something we thought we'd left behind and hopefully when all this is over we will have left it behind that means we do have to rethink our um healthcare system yeah. we have to move away from acute care to chronic 
comorbidities, looking after people in the community. And I think what we're really understanding is it's all about health across the mm-hmm. life course. And so one way to look at it is that we very much had a model of geriatric medicine, which is that we all potter along until we get into our 60s or 70s. Then we start getting chronic complaints and we spend the next 20 years trying to battle ill health. Instead of actually putting prevention in when we are younger so that we don't go into chronic ill health, probably till our 80s. And we've had great success among the richer populations in high income countries, really pushing back the onset of some of these chronic Mm -hmm. diseases. But we still see in some of the poor individuals, even though they're living in high income countries like North America, Europe, they're starting some of these chronic comorbidities much, much younger. So the key is healthy lives across the life course. I guess even now with the coronavirus of making us rethink our lifestyles, right? Like we're based in New York City. It is very interesting to see the city on pause. You know, we don't stop here. So, and it's not healthy. And we probably do not realize it at younger age, but like, as you get older, there's a reason why you see less and less elderly people in New York City, because it's not a healthy environment to be in if it's like constantly on the go. So it actually like started to make us like rethink everything about lifestyle and if we're considering if we're going to live that long how can we ensure we have a healthy life living it not like you know the last 30 40 years it with dealing with chronic illnesses and i think like this also situation sort of started to make us think about you know relating to elderlies i mean we've unfortunately seen that ageism is a thing like people taking the lockdown really not seriously or like this social distancing or staying at home by thinking that that's the 65 plus year olds problem, you know, and it's, it's really sad to see that. And that happened in many, many countries. Um, And when it really got serious, when they started to hear that the hospitals are overflowing or hear about the death rates, people really took it seriously. So uh, we think, and I would love to get your like perspective on this, um, as we sort of are becoming in the more similar age group altogether, and as we have a growing elderly population, that will, I hope, sort of help us really connect and be more in tune with different generations, and maybe we will relate to one another more. So I actually think it might allow for a more collaborative and cohesive population. I mean, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think it's really important to understand that we have lived a very, very age-segregated life over the last 50 to 75 years. That we tend not to live with people of different age groups. We don't work with people of different age groups because things like early retirement, we exclude very healthy, active adults from about 55 onwards Mm -hmm. out of our workplaces. And I think because of that, there's all these barriers have sort of built up. And part of it is because our families are smaller. So once upon a time, you would have far more children, far more cousins, far more uncles and aunts, far more um, grandparents that you would be in contact with, grandchildren, etc. And we just have much smaller nuclear units now. And one of the things, I mean, I, I, I think there are many things I hope good things could come out of this. One around, is obviously around health. Um, so, for example, the way that our environment is so much cleaner, and you must see it in New yeah. York, it is amazing i think you saw those amazing pictures of delhi did you see the pictures of yeah. delhi it's absolutely extraordinary. um 
And we know, for example, that you know, air pollution contributes to respiratory problems. And there are some suggestions that actually across the globe, deaths from acute respiratory syndromes will actually go down and compensate from the increase in deaths wow. from coronavirus. Because we think that pollution has been particularly bad for people who um, suffer from these kind of respiratory complaints. We also know that the longer we live with pollutants, the more they build up in our bodies. And there is a body of work that says, yes, we're living with environmental pollutants, we're living with air pollutants, and that may be contributing to ill health across the life course and accumulation as we get older. Um, so hopefully that's one thing we're going to take very seriously, understanding environmental change, pollution, health policy, etc. But the other thing is, I really hope is around age segregation. Um, and one of the things we're doing at Oxford is really pushing for these age integrated communities. No longer do we want young people living in one area and working in one area and older adults living somewhere else. We should be building proper age integrated communities. We know, for example, that we have huge problems of loneliness and mental health and lack of well-being among some mm -hmm. of our younger people. Um, and even when we look at things like our Oxford students, you know, although we try and look after their well-being, we know that there is an increase in mental health problems among all students at the moment. And we also know that actually living with other young people who've also got these mental health problems can actually increase the constant sort of wow. fear and anxiety. And that if we lived in mixed age groups, there's a lot of evidence where we've done research, particularly where younger people have gone to talk to older people in order to enhance the well-being of older people. And what's happened is the young people have come away and gone, that was just amazing. You know, I feel so much better talking to an older adult who's actually had the same experiences that I had and being able to understand, you know, that actually life is a series of circles and you're not doing it by yourself your generation is not unique all generations go through this they all fall in love they all split up they all have yeah. issues and problems um so there is a lot of research that shows that putting older adults and younger adults together in a natural way and that can be within a family and i'm sure we've all got grandparents and we all really value those kind of conversations we have with our parents and grandparents and that's what our world should be like we should be integrating um, both in the workplace and in our communities, older and younger and middle-aged people. And why did we all start segregating? You know, that I think it was for the wrong reasons, and I think we've suffered from it. And we have a lot of evidence also that mixed age groups are very, very good from an employment mm. point of view. And we now have a, a real body of research that if you have mixed age teams, they're far more productive than just having single age teams. Right. Wow. So interesting. What do you think as like some of these and I guess like we, we talk about intergenerational communities, it also goes into housing. And then when we talked about the educational system, we talked about healthcare. like, uh, well, unfortunately, it, it's like relies on government and policy, which typically takes a while and lags, right? What do you think, um, I guess, private corporations or um, like, you know, different professions like architects or, you know, individual health, private health companies or even like schools can do to sort of be a little bit more proactive about this? Like, do we need to raise more awareness? Is it education? Do we just need to like create case examples and get the word out there? What do you think? I would say that definitely 10 years ago, even five years ago, 
Um, governments had woken up to the fact that we needed not just to look at healthcare and pensions, but we needed to look at education, we needed to look at work, we needed to look at the built environment. We did, um, I chaired a big review for the UK government mm-hmm. um, three, four years ago, and our overwhelming findings was that the built environment is so important. Housing is important, workplaces are important, public spaces are important. Transport systems are important, and if we need to get our physical infrastructure right. But I would say over the last two or three years, um, many I, I do a lot of corporate talking mm-hmm. and it used to be corporate speaking, and it used to be very much insurance companies and banks, um, but now it's the real estate world. Wow. That's just great before to hear. <laughs> the world closed, no, just before the world closed down, I went to a big real estate conference in London. And for the first time, instead of me talking and people going, oh, gosh, that's interesting. We had people from different corporate entities, somebody who dealt with um, um, retail, someone who dealt with offices and someone who dealt with residential communities. And we had a panel after my talk and they all were really well informed and they'd all done their own research. And this was the corporate world going, we need to take this seriously, this age shift. Amazing. And they were really buying into the fact that a lot of it's about health, a lot of it is about understanding that age groups are not homogeneous, that we need age-integrated communities. Um, So I just got this real feeling that suddenly the corporate world is really beginning to understand that that demographic ageing is a real challenge, but it can also be an opportunity. and, And in the end, we'll have a better world. That is, yeah, I think that is the mind blowing part, like how they missed out on that. Like if, you know, like if you're not even trying to be socially responsible or just like, you know, considerate of our elderly population, it is a huge market if you consider that now 50 above population is actually going to be the population that has the money to even be part of something. We also look into like well, home ownerships and how this drastic lower in 25 to 40 age groups compared to how it was years ago. And when we consider that, and also all these tech innovations and how so many 25 or 30 year olds today are actually exiting with millions and millions of dollars or pounds, and they're the ones who are going to be wealthy over 50. So it's interesting to see like they caught up to that late because that's your future client if you're not considering about any social aspect at least that is you know as a business I think you know they're late but I'm at least glad to hear like real estate individuals are uh, also uh, attending these um, conferences as real estate typically also lags right we're not where we should be at housing public spaces um, and you know are it's very very behind on sustainability and it mm-hmm. has huge uh, implications on climate change too. So at least it's good to hear, you know, there is pickup on that. But the other thing to look, I mean, we, we did um, a piece of work um, maybe 10 years ago, and we brought the sustainable development people with the inclusive people together. So those people who are concerned about the environment and those people who are concerned about age integration. Yeah. And the best way to solve both those problems was to solve them together that the kind of drivers around us all beginning to live in a more communal way, a more sustainable way, what was good for the environment was also good for bringing people together, living in smaller communities, but integrated communities, instead of having very expensive, huge acute hospitals, having local community centers. So when when we started coming from each of our own perspectives, we realized that 
sustainable, inclusive communities is the future. Yeah, I think that ties perfectly into us asking your advice. We actually do need multidisciplinary teams or diverse teams to address um, not only just like disciplines, but different interests or different uh, beliefs to come together and sort of plan for our future. Anything else you would want to add to that? I think, I think multidisciplinary approaches are crucial. I think um, it's understanding that the built environment in all its aspects is going to provide a sustainable future going forward and that this age integration, if anything, we shouldn't be talking about older adults, we should be talking about a sort of age integrated society. Um, and we should be getting away from the idea that somehow at 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, you become old, whereas at 20, 35, even 40, you're young. I mean, you know, we, we live in a complex society and we should be looking at individuals and individual needs and enabling us basically across our life course to live healthy, active lives for as long as it's possible. This was amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you. Welcome to Fact Check. My name is Yasmin Abuzaid. I'm the strategic designer and researcher at Arai Carbajo. Addressing global challenges and emerging issues requires an understanding of world population levels, trends, and projections. They are essential pieces of knowledge in policy development, program implementation, and strategic planning and foresight. The world's population now stands at 7.8 billion inhabitants and is expected to increase by 2 billion persons in the next 30 years, putting us at 9.7 billion inhabitants in 2050. Our population trends will have far-reaching implications for generations to come and have been driven largely by increasing numbers of people surviving to reproductive age, accompanied by major changes in fertility, increasing urbanization, and accelerating migration. Future population growth is highly dependent on the path that future fertility will take. According to the 2019 World Population Prospects, global fertility is projected to fall from 2.5 children per woman in 2019 to 2.2 in 2050. Overall, significant gains in life expectancy have been achieved in recent years. Globally, life expectancy at birth is expected to rise from 72.6 years in 2019 to 77.1 years in 2050. However, life expectancy at birth in the least developed countries lags 7.4 years behind the global average. International migration is a much smaller component of population change than death rates or birth rates. However, in some countries and areas, the impact of migration on population size is significant. Namely, in countries that send or receive large numbers of economic migrants and those affected by refugee flows. These demographic trends are contributing to the many challenges facing humanity, in including food production, water shortages, poverty, housing, climate change, environmental degradation, human rights, civil unrest, displacement, and loneliness. With people living more insular lives and an increase in older citizens comes the potential for an increasingly lonely population. For most people, loneliness arises from unmet needs for social interactions. Loneliness is not only a social issue, it's a health issue. It's a precursor to poor medical and social outcomes that will create economic ripple effects across families, multiple industries, and society as a whole. Loneliness is also not a generational issue. People of all ages can face difficulties when adjusting to life's changes or seeking a sense of belonging among others who share similar goals and interests. Whether old or young, most people have a strong need to feel a sense of belonging and a connection with like-minded others. 
Our increasing generational diversity should be seen as an asset and fully leveraged. Cities, planners and developers need to think more about investing in assets for all ages. Public spaces and transportation should be designed to serve all ages. Zoning codes and policies should allow for more intergenerational interaction and encourage these kinds of projects. Intergenerational living creates meaningful cross-age relationships which studies have shown decrease social isolation and increase older adults' sense of belonging, self-esteem and well-being while also improving social and emotional skills of younger adults. As a society, we must move away from our current generational stratification and encourage the reintegration of generations. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. For more information on our events and podcasts, visit us at what's wrong with .xyz.